Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Once a month, I am joined in the studio by Bernard Callio, a comic book writer, publisher, lover, uh, philosophizer, <laughs> and we we enthuse in a little segment called Drawn Out about the marvellous magical combination of words and pictures on a page and how they come together to tell stories in a way that a novel just can't. Bernard, hello. Richard Watts. Hello, how are you? I am well, thank yeah, you. It's excellent. lovely to be back in the studio, lovely to be back with you. Indeed, indeed. Happy new, happy, well, not so new year. Well, like, fairly new year because it was only, it only just became the year of the rabbit just recently. Okay, happy ears, happy ears of the rabbit to And you. that's the Chinese new year. I think the Vietnamese new year is year of the something else, which I'll have to look up. Okay, okay. Maybe we can combine them, make some sort of super, super, super creature. Um, now, speaking uh, of super creatures. See, speaking of super creatures, yes. You know the all the talk about the uh, this weird radioactive thing dropped <laughs> yes. kind of over in WA? It, a friend's comment was like, they're never going to find it. It's going to be swallowed by a goanna <laughs> and then Godzilla will become real. I'm actually disappointed they found it. Yeah, it is a bit, it is a bit of a bummer. I mean, in the real world, probably good, but uh, yes. in fantasy world's very very excellent and please please out there uh comic book maker who has the yen for that sort of uh high fantasy of superhero doom or super monster doom it's a it's a real opportunity it's a um, real opportunity i think it's something that gestalt over in wa indeed, should pick up for example indeed we should pitch it to them yeah <laughs> okay uh, What's giant, the Japanese phrase for giant monsters? Is a it? kaiju. Yes. It's a kaiju. It's an, an Australian Astro- kaiju. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, very, uh, very nice. Sorry, it's- I've completely derailed the conversation. <laughs> I'm sure you had something else you were going to talk about. Look, I did, but that's a good segue. I'm going to bring one of the things I was going to talk about a little later up to the front of the uh, conversation, and that is just to say that uh, I do want to talk about a, a, a book that is just words. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, so um, Alan Moore, who is a comic book writer... Um, Who's knows the score. <laughs> he knows the... Thank you. Um, Pop System? Who, who, who had, who, whose uh, lyric was that? Uh, we will come back to that because I might play it at the end of the segment. Uh, lovely, lovely. Alan Moore knows the score. And for some of us, Alan Moore does know the score. Um, and uh, So he's a, he's a comic book writer, uh, uh, English, and really did a lot to re-envision, reinvent uh, particularly the superhero comic in the, in the 80s and 90s. Um, Do you think he regrets the kind of the I don't know the the gritty superhero look kind of which he yeah. was he was part, part of, of that movement? Yes. Look, yeah, I, I uh, speculate that he does, um, and I have two sources of uh, evidence uh, for that. One is one of the latest. Last comic book, uh, superhero comics he wrote was a beautiful uh, uh, superhero comic called Tom Strong. And Tom Strong is a really very, very ch- uh, kid-friendly re-envisaging of the... the in, in that particular world, the, the superheroes are called science heroes. Tom Strong was published uh, by, by, by a very, very funny comics line he made up called America's Best Comics, ABC. <laughs> um, so that... And that was... The opposite of that dark and gritty sort of feel that he and Frank Miller and other comic book makers sort of uh, um, pushed, I suppose, in that 80s, 90s period. Um, eh, 
the other source of information is is the is the book I want to talk about, which is his recent book of short stories. So last year, Alan Moore um, published a book of short stories, or Bloomsbury published it, 2022, called Illuminations, and it collected his short fiction, uh, including a. Um, uh, stories back from the 80s. You know, he's been writing short stories for a long time. He's also written novels. Um, but what is in that book, sort of buried at the heart of it, its radioactive core is a long short story, a couple of hundred pages. Uh, so is that a short story? It's a novella? No- I guess it's a novella buried in this um, uh, 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 collection of otherwise uh, uh, um, length-obeying short stories, um, which is called What We Can Know About Thunderman. And Thunderman is the stand-in for Superman, uh, and it's a fictional retelling of the origin story of the superheroes. So it's really about creators um, going all the way back to the 40s, when, which is when really in the real world um, the superhero sort of was born, um, and, all the way through to the early 2000s. It is the most horrific <laughs> um, uh, depiction, a, a very grotesque uh, picture of of the the world of makers and publishers of superhero comics, and and really, it's a it's in a, as a review I read somewhere. It says Alan Moore is 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 not out to make friends uh, with this with this depiction of. The, this fictional depiction of superhero making and, and really... Can, can we just say, uh, I suspect that fictional should be in inverted <laughs> commas, uh, given Alan Moore's experience at DC yes. and with other comic books where his intellectual property was... Uh, Solid. Yeah, mm. yeah. And um, I suspect he has a, a reason to be bitter and I think I need to read this story. Yeah, to, I think to you do. A fascinating it, insight. It, it really, work. yeah, it's... it's, it's yeah, it's 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 flaying. It, it it is a flaying. Anyway, so that's um, that's that's uh, from Alan Moore's collection of short stories, Illuminations. Uh, the others, the stories of which are lovely, Alan Moore, classic Alan Moore sort of uh, explorations of of the gods, monsters, the everyday, how the imagination. Uh, lies within um, everyday life, I suppose. That's very, very capsule sort of review. Anyway, nonetheless, we're not going to talk uh, about uh, about superheroes here today because, uh, in my view, the, the the most interesting things in comics are happening in non-superhero um, uh, genres. Um, and the first one I want to present to you, and just to be, be, be a bit careful, this is uh, this is also fairly um, radioactive. Uh, this is a book called. Called How to Make a Monster. Uh, written, written by, is it Vic? Casanova Frankenstein is the writer. Casanova and his oh, I middle... don't think Casanova Frankenstein is a real name. Well, what about their middle name? Nobody. Casanova Ooh. Nobody Frankenstein. And, uh, the, so, and Casanova Nobody Frankenstein is a black American uh, comic book writer, maker. Uh, and uh, Glenn Pierce, who is the artist on this book, uh, is an Australian, so he's uh, a remarkable comic book maker. Really, one of my favourite comic book makers in in Australia, Glenn Pierce. Incredibly uh, great facility with uh, pen, ink, and and the grotesque. Now, uh, just yes. before we keep going, yes, is like Casanova Frankenstein to me sounded like a fictional name, which is why I said sure. I don't think it's a real person, sure. but it is. 
It's not a nom de plume. It's the author's name. Well, as far as I know, okay. yeah. So at the back, you can see at the back of the book, in, in, in the inside cover, you can see his... his, okay. his there he is, Casanova, Casanova Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which and is a fascinating fusion of... Uh, names from literary traditions. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed, indeed. And then nobody in the centre there as the middle name. Yeah. Perhaps a reference to Grant Morrison's Mr. Nobody uh, from Doom Patrol. Nice work. Nice, nice comic book sleuthing. That's very, very good. Um, so this is a highly disturbing uh, a comic book and it's an autobiographical. So autobiography, I would say, has sort of taken over from superheroes as the main genre of of comic book work at the moment that's a that's a risk saying that but i think i'm gonna stake some put some put some shekels behind it and say that i think that's what's going on this is a very deep uh uh exp- um uh investigation uh incision into this into, into casanova frankenstein's life when he was in year eight so what does that make him sort of 13 13 yeah, yeah. and he it's really about a year a terrible yeah, and a terrible childhood, really, in Chicago. Very much a loner, very much um, you know, teased and bullied pitilessly. Um, so this is a, this is a hard slog. This comic book, um, a remarkable cover you got there in your hands. Uh, you know that sort of it is a baby Frankenstein image. It is literally a, like a beautifully kind of sketchy image. Yes, uh, layered and coloured uh, of. Uh, a, a fairly haunted young face that is half hidden by shadow, yeah, but yeah and a big literally ske- stitched together. together. We can see the scars. Yeah, yeah. So then that's it's a it's a very good cover for what's what's happening inside this book. Very very uh, difficult relationship with the parents, no friends, a real uh, loner story, and um, and Glenn Pierce is imagery. Because he is, he also leans into the grotesque uh, very happily, I suppose, or uh, strongly. Strongly is a better word. Um, so you've got this very dark tale. Um, it's published by Fantagraphics, so the great uh, independent comic books or alternative comic books publisher in in the US, and who's been publishing for forty, getting on to fifty years. And to me, it reminds me of another. Amazing comic book that came out from Fantagraphics a couple of years ago uh, called My Favourite Thing is Monsters by a woman, Emile Ferris. Uh, and hers is also a Chicago story. Um, it is also very d- d- dark and disturbing. It's a, a childhood story. Um, uh, hers is more beautiful. Uh, so her art style is more, um, you know, she she riffs on famous monster, the covers of famous monster movies or famous mon- the, the magazine famous monsters. So she's really fixated on monsters, uh, fictional monsters. Well, there are monsters here in how to make a monster because yeah. I I mean the 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 two page kind of uh, well the two pages I'm looking at the the way the art style segues from yeah. s- realistic. Um, uh, a kind of lightly sketched but nonetheless detailed realistic drawing of somebody being confronted with a bully in a hallway, a bully riding on somebody else's shoulders. Mm. Uh, um, uh, It was like being chased by some Herculean totem pole, um, (laughs) an inhuman bully totem. (laughs) Uh, And as the panels progress, we 
shift from that realistic drawing style into um, suddenly a much more fantastic, monstrous, frightening horror comic style in which uh, our perhaps our uh, protagonist's perspective then also shifts from realistic to this kind of elongated, more fragile-looking kind of... Kind of version of themselves. Yeah. So look, yeah, it's yeah. just these two pages alone make uh, intrigue me yes. in terms of the the visual style yeah. and the the narrative it accompanies. I think it's a, a remarkable pairing of these these the, the, the writing and and Glenn Pierce's uh, facility for, for for comics and his uh, uh, literacy, I, I, I guess, because to tell a story straight, that is to say, sort of one style. Um, c- continuous, uh, it'd die on the page. It'd be, it'd be. Whereas the the iconicity that um, that Glenn Pierce plays with and his and his drawing talents uh, just mean that there's it's it's plastic. So it's a very very disturbing book, but a really really interesting one. So that's um, how to make a monster. Uh, published by Fantagraphics, written by Casanova Frankenstein and illustrated by Australian uh, comic book artist Glenn Pierce, uh, Glenn with dub- double N. And the other book that you mentioned so far was Illuminations, the collection of short stories slash a novella by the legendary comic book writer Alan Moore, which was published l- uh, in October last year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and just if, if you are a monster fan, uh, my favourite thing is, is Monsters by Emil, E-M-I-L, Emil Ferris uh, is also published by Fantagraphics. And can we talk about another book? We Uh, can. Great. This is Rebecca Stewart's uh, book, Infernal Regions. Rebecca Stewart is a local comic book maker. Well, look, she's a local artist, I would say, uh, and and does comics as well. And that's a great – I think that's a great uh, range of things to do, uh, particularly because – as we know in Australia, there's not a lot of work uh, to to, uh, to 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 get your um, to be employed as a comic book artist. So to have other things uh, going is a really great way to work your as 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 all artists need to do to sort of keep things ticking along. But this is a Infernal Regions is really fun. It's a, a what would we call, call that sort of between A four and A three. So maybe maybe it is A three. No, not quite A3, but it's a big format book. It's square bound. It's got a lovely bluey, greeny cover, Infernal Regions, and we're clearly underwater. Now, the back cover blurb yeah, immediately on. references Australian history, uh-huh. but immediately also moves away from yes. Australian history to create a fictional tale. Yes. A prime minister strides into a boiling sea yes. and disappears. So it's uh, it's Harold Holt. Indeed. Vanishing off the coast of Portsea. Indeed. Uh, back in the 1960s, 60s, I think, yep. yep. Um, we have a swimming pool named after him, which yep. is beautifully <laughs> ironic. Um, but then it bec- it takes that idea and moves into the realm of, of fantasy. Very much, very much. So that exciting thing about for, – for me, this is meat and drink. I love comics – Taking a you know taking a, a pallet of radioactive um, uh, you know which is you know, in, in our news this week and then running with it I think comics are a great space for play they are excellent excellent sand pits as well as of course uh, places to explore the the trauma of the real world which is what we have in how to make a monster but this is a great 
example of how you can use comics to to go. Okay, here's some, some here's this strand of Australian history. Here's this mystery um, about Harold Holt, the, the the Prime Minister who drowned, and then Stuart follows him into that water, wakes him up down there, and in very uh, some pages are panelled, that panel, panel, panel. Other pages are large, one picture. Um, almost etchings, like sort of a, a 19th century sort of feel about them. So the internal artwork is black and white. Um, There's a beautiful use of white space on the page as well, indeed. which is, to me, a sign of the confidence of, of an artist when they can go, There's, it's almost an entirely blank page, but here's just a hint at the yeah. top and the bottom of the frame to give you a sense of, of the drama and the scale, the scale. of the story that yeah, we are telling. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and yeah. then we go from that to these fantastic underworld realms of things that might be part clamshell, part octopus, yeah, part machine. In, some of them, yeah. you know, it is. It, he uh, Harold Holt has really look. We all wondered what happened. Uh, uh, it but, wasn't a Chinese <laughs> submarine. It really wasn't. He's really uh, learned some lessons down there about um, the infinite, the ineffable, uh, the 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 deeps, the deeps. He's gone into Harold Holt has gone into the deeps, and in in infernal regions. Rebecca Stewart, local artist, uh, I think she's based in the um, uh, Nicholas Building in uh, in in the city, um, and she uh, even has a website listed on the back of the comic. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it's Rebecca Lennox, as in Annie Lennox, Stuart.com. So that's where you want to go. Stuart with a W? Uh, Stuart with a W. Rebecca Lennox, Stuart.com. That's it. So that's where you need to go. Uh, or, you know, just turn up at the Nicholas building and knock, knock on doors until, until somebody answers to Rebecca Stewart. There's a lot of artist studios and <laughs> jeweller studios and hat makers and architects and all other people. And you may be knocking on doors for a while. Sometime, but you'll have the best day of your life. You, you'll meet some fascinating people. <laughs> um, finally, um, the, the, uh, uh, the, 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 the driving force of Australian comics is zines. Zines, so you can go wake up this morning if you're waking up right now and make a zine today and put it on a photocopier and print it out and then you'll be a zine maker. So uh, just as I was referring to before, we don't have much of an elaborated industry here, but we do have an incredibly fertile and strong zine um, community. And so I'd just like to spruik the Festival of the Photocopier, uh, which is on Saturday 11th and Sunday the 12th of February. So, in a week's time or so, at the Meat Market Craft Centre, if it's still called that, maybe it's just called it the Meat Market. hasn't been called the Craft Centre since about <laughs> the early 90s. And there, and there we are, dating, dating, dating ourselves, which sounds bad. Anyway, um, uh, so just called the Meat Market, folks, uh, <laughs> uh, in North Melbourne, 3 Blackwood Street. And that, the Festival of the Photocopier, a celebration of all things zine, zine-ish, zine, zine-arama, zine, zine-land, from 12 to 5 each of those days. So, 200 zine stalls, so many comics, so many poetry zines, so many politics zines. I'm sure there'll be some cat zines there if, if, that's, if that's your thing. So that's Festival of Photocopier. You mentioned earlier in our conversation, Bernard, that you believe that the, effectively the memoir yes. has become the dominant form yes. of uh, – well, not necessarily the dominant form, but perhaps the most – compelling form of contemporary comic bookmaking? Uh, I, I would say that 
since uh, Art Spiegelman's Mouse of 1986, since uh, uh, Alison Bechtel's Fun Home of 2006, uh, I would say even um, Joe Sacco's books of journalism feature him uh, as, as a character. Yeah, so I'd, I'd say that that's, that's where the energy is. I think. Which means if people go to the Festival of the Photocopier, yes. it will be a great chance to pick up kind of autobiographical uh, zines, memoir, comics by a whole new range of writers and perhaps an opportunity to be inspired to draw and create your own. Totally. I mean, that's, it's, it's less a fair than a sort of a, a conversation. I would say, yeah, yeah, sure. You're giving somebody a dollar or two dollars or whatever for their for their A5 photocopy mini comic or zine or whatever, but really you're there to to go, wow, amazing piece. Talk to me about how you did it. You know, that's it's it is yeah, it's that space of of the conversation and 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 the share and the oh yes, now I've got that idea for that that uh, the pellet of radioactive material in the deserts. <laughs> so the Festival of the Photocopier happening at the Meat Market, 3 Blackwood Street in North Melbourne, next Saturday, the 11th of February, from midday until 5pm. And the 12th, and the 12th, both days. And the 12th, both yep. days, okay. Yep. So Bring uh, your own pellet of radioactive material. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe leave the radioactive material at home, but do bring money. Yeah. Uh, I recommend cash. Probably cash. Um, so that you can buy zines and comics and have a wonderful time. And a, 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 a pad and a pen to write down people's... Uh, actually, that's dating me as much as calling the Meat Market Craft Centre the Meat Market Craft Centre because probably you'd use your phone. If you had a phone, I don't have a phone. But if you had a phone, you'd probably use that to take down people's names, wouldn't you, young Richard Watts? Now, Bernard, the final question for you. <laughs> Can you dig it? <laughs> Triple R. It's time for us now to have a conversation about the visual arts. There's an exhibition which I'm particularly intrigued by called Romancing the Streetscape. It's a group exhibition on at Hawthorne's Town Hall Gallery and is showing now until the 15th of April. One of the participating artists, Robert Clinch, joins us in the studio. Robert, there's a long history in Australian art of depicting street life, the world of the street, whether it's kind of artists in Brunswick or whether it's John Brack's Collins Street, whatever you kind of, uh, whichever works you want to think about. For you as an artist, why is, why is the streetscape? Why are the inner suburbs? Why is Melbourne's architecture of such interest for you from a, a visual and creative perspective? Look, I think it... Um Surprising as much as I grew up in the country in New South Wales and came to Melbourne as a 12-year-old, um, whether I was uh, suddenly uh, excited by the visual landscape or whether the built uh, structures were part of my natural DNA because both my grandfathers and my father were engineers, probably even though I felt like I was a black sheep, the apple didn't fall too far from the tree from that point of view. But Melbourne also has no topography. We have our structures and that's the world that we look at. And so to describe um, the human condition via the world that we've built around us was a very thing, a very easy thing to do, um, borrowing from the structures that were around me. It's not the kind of thing you could do easily in Sydney because the top topography upstages the buildings all the time and even the iconic Sydney Harbour Bridge and the Opera House end up just being bit players in the picture postcard. It, it really took um, 
um, Jeffrey Smart, an Adelaide painter, to sort of get that down to street level with the Carhill Expressway. But Melbourne is street level everywhere. We're just looking at buildings because the land is flat. How long have you been painting kind of buildings and landscapes? Oh, look, I've been painting since I should have been doing my homework at school. My parents didn't know, and as long as I can get by at that stage, that was uh, all I needed to do. Um, I, in my early days, painted um, in all sorts of idioms. I, if you'd believe it, if you see my work, I did quite a bit of abstract and geometrical abstraction. Uh, as a child, I was probably uh, a comic book drawer. Um, but I had a, a simple idea um, that really just related to something I'd observed, just a feature of a building, which was the first of what has become the way I paint. And although I imagine that I, that has progressed over the years, I haven't deviated from that vision. I was very lucky that I found my voice very, very early. And it's been a matter of developing that and progressing that. And I've been very comfortable with that for the last 40 or so years. Before we talk more about your work in particular, talk to us a little bit more about Romancing the Streetscape as an exhibition. Uh, talk to us, about, when did the curator first approach you, for example? Uh, look, I uh, was approached, oh, crikey, um, sometime last year by um, the curator um, Ellie Hale and um, Rachel Keir-Smith um, had a conversation with me about this proposed exhibition which was very much on uh, going to be uh, realism, which it's turned out to be, um, but realism comes in all sorts of forms. Um, I didn't know how many artists or who the other artists were going to be. Um, eventually, further down the track, they mentioned that Rick A. Moore uh, was going to be in the show. Now, Rick and I don't know each other particularly well, probably because we're fairly private people and we're probably better known for our work than ourselves anyway. Um, but also, we knew each other's work for that reason very, very well too. And it's very nice now, serendipitously, that our works are talking to each other across a room after all these years of that familiarity. Now, the exhibition has been open since the 18th of January. I'm guessing you've had a chance to, to walk through and see not just Rick's work, but the other works in the space as well. Absolutely. I knew William Breen's work before. I didn't know the other artists. And it's exciting to see... Um, different ways of viewing the streetscape um, and there are younger artists there who I hadn't even heard of before and it's nice to now be familiar with their work and of course to have met them too. Uh, the funny thing is I never went to art school so the um, artists who I do know now tend to be people whose work I saw and eventually got to meet them and maybe it's a testament to the uh, honesty of their work that if I like their work I tend to like them and I met some really nice people and this is a great show. There are seven artists, um, there are people from different backgrounds, people viewing Melbourne in very different ways. So as well as uh, Rick and William, who you've mentioned, and yourself, obviously, uh, the other participating artists are Andrew Brown, Mark Chu, Cathy Drummond and Danny McKenzie. Now, to come back to your work in particular, Robert, you paint using a Renaissance technique. I do indeed, yeah. Look, it's sort of this... Um this happened rather than by choice but by a negative experience with other mediums and then I was looking for the, uh, the holy grail. Um, I didn't like working with oils. I didn't trust acrylics because they've only been around for about a century now and I 
was painting really major works and you'll see one of these paintings it's called Lot's Wife it's still the biggest painting I've ever done it's a brooding landscape an industrial landscape um, that sort of refers to the biblical story without God needing to do destroy our city because we've been going up the wrong path we're hell-bent on destroying the whole planet ourselves. Um, but this painting is done on paper in a combination of watercolour gouache and dry brush and it sort of dawned on me that to be trying to say such permanent and hopefully poignant things about uh, mankind and the future of the planet in a medium which is very fragile is is foolish but also to spend months and months and months on a painting of that scale on paper um, when I could be doing it in a more robust medium um, set me on a search. I saw or I had seen over the years Renaissance paintings that were looking as if they'd been painted yesterday and then discovered also that you know stuff in Tutankhamun's tomb looks like it was painted yesterday. So what was this medium? Um, and then I was walking past Eckersley's Art Supplies one day uh, years and years ago and there was a little book in the window called New Techniques in Egg Tempera and this was the medium those people had been using and they'd started painting in oils in the Renaissance because they felt they couldn't get naturalistic or realistic effects and here was an American artist very much like his colleague Andrew Wyeth painting very realistically but in Egg Tempera so what was the difference? The difference wasn't the medium the medium wasn't the problem the method was the problem and I began a research into the medium I in 1993 won a Martin Bequest traveling scholarship having done no study which is quite an achievement I think um, and with introductions from John Payne who was then panel conservator at the National Gallery of Victoria I met some of the world's leading art conservators there weren't practitioners that I could talk to in Australia and to talk to the people restoring these early works was going to give me the answers as to what is the best formula and I'd read Cianino, Cianini's Libera dell'arte, uh, the artist's handbook obviously in translation and um, it looked like a very simple thing. It is egg yolk, water and pigment. Now the works that result are realistic to a degree uh, yeah. But they are views of Melbourne that are both familiar and impossible at the same time because of the, the, the way you have layered and constructed and added details to the streetscape. Yeah, people see my paintings and they say, I know where that is. And I'll say to them, you know a building like that. But the picture is actually in my imagination. These are capriccios like uh, Canaletto and Bellotto used to paint. They're invented landscapes that look real um, and they're to tell a story. There's a narrative involved. And so I'm borrowing buildings that I find in Melbourne that are familiar to what I've imagined or I'm making them up, which sometimes involves making three-dimensional models to get the shadows right. It's a painstaking process. And if I said I was taking months to do my watercolour works, I'm now taking sometimes years to do my tempera paintings. So these things don't happen quickly or easily. But they're very staged and there's not a square inch that hasn't been carefully designed and lovingly painted. Why not paint what you see in front of you? Why create 
works that are both real and imagined? Um, look, veduta painting, as they call it, scene painting, really went out the window when we invented the the camera. And although you'll see ex- uh, sorry, you'll see artists in this exhibition who are photo realists, they actually have photo driven um, imagery. Um, I work entirely from drawings. I don't want to be tied down to the existing visual stimulus. To me, it's just a vehicle that I use to tell the story. So I'm putting together a jigsaw puzzle um, from observation done at numerous locations, plein air. I set up an easel and I draw. Which means, again, you've said that you didn't study, but you must be a skilled draftsman as well as a skilled painter. I suppose I have to be because I'm ex- I have high expectations. I'm a perfectionist. Um, I enjoy drawing, though. I enjoy the pursuit of the image. I enjoy trying to capture the things that are in front of me, even though those things are only going to be a tool in the visual effect that I'm trying to make manifest. This imaginary image in my mind's eye is what I want you to see quite explicitly. What about what you want the audience to feel when they look at your work. There's a melancholy to some of them, for example. Thank you, thank you. Uh, Look, I I sometimes get too much feedback about the technical side of things and the wow factor of the realism and things like that, but I hope there's poetry. I do feel things deeply. I do care about things. I do want to have nuance, all those subtle um, words like, um, you know, uh, deja vu and uh, uh, words where there are just um, yearning, um, things that aren't just black and white, things that we are drawn to but we can't necessarily put our finger on. Um, that's something that I'm setting out to achieve as well. Yearning is an interesting word to use when we're talking about streetscapes. Uh, and hearkening back to what you were saying earlier in the conversation about coming from uh, country Australia and moving to the city and being startled by the built environment around you or delighting in the built environment around you. Is there nonetheless for you perhaps a yearning to the buildings that we've lost, the the stories that we've lost? Good question. I mean, there's a lot of contrast between the old and the new and the ongoing story in my work. If you go to this exhibition, one thing you'll notice is that there are very few people. These are landscapes denuded of the activity the everyday life and i think that sort of that 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 um vacancy creates questions and and actually attracts us to what we're looking at because we become the participant because we're not looking at another participant in rick's and my work there is single figure in a number of the paintings um and that talks about isolation as well talks about what is going on one person's mind without having to include the crowd and yet most of our streets um particularly when we get into the inner city have people walking have people riding certainly have cars driving Uh, there are bicycles in a lot of these pictures which i think is quite amusing be a good kids project to say count the bicycles in the show and look talking about the show it's really important to get along and see these things in the flesh I did a floor talk before the opening of the exhibition and one of the questions was saying in the book 
your work just doesn't look as good as in the flesh. And I said, well, there are a lot of things there. Uh, you can't reproduce the colour and you can't reproduce the um, the, uh, the paint quality, um, but you can't reproduce the scale or the presence of an object of art. And now that we're out of lockdown, the chance to get out and actually have the experience of seeing the art and being in its presence is vastly different to viewing it on my website, for instance, or for viewing it in a book or on a print or something like that um, there's just something special about actually being in the audience not just hearing the recording Romancing the Streetscape is now showing at Hawthorne's Town Hall Gallery, located at 360 Burwood Road, Hawthorne. Entry is free. The exhibition is on until the 15th of April, and you can find out more details at www.burundara.vic.gov.au forward slash events forward slash romancing hyphen streetscape. If that sounds too complicated, just Google Romancing the Streetscape exhibition. I've been talking to one of the participating artists in the group show, Robert Clinch. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Richard, thank you very much for having me on. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Earlier this week, on Monday, at the ESPY, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, uh, launched a new national cultural policy for Australia. There has been enormous interest in said policy uh, in the last 12 months or so, uh, and I think some pleasant surprise when it was revealed that uh, I know plenty of people in the sector who weren't expecting much money at all to be uh, announced as part of the policy, but uh, instead $286 million. Joining us on the line to kind of unpick the policy, which uh, is called Revive, I'm joined by Esther Anatolitis, who is the editor of Mianjin uh, and a well-known arts advocate. Esther, thanks for joining us. Good morning, great to be here. First and foremost, why do we need a national cultural policy? Oh, such a good question. Well, I mean, let's um, zoom in and then zoom out. I think artists, uh, the art sector, um, everyone who makes and shares and enjoys art needs to know that the government is thinking really strategically about what enables all that great work to happen, what prevents uh, an artist from starting a great career and then just not having anywhere next to go, any kinds of supports, any opportunities for publication, for, for touring, any kind of you know, broader strategies that help develop the sector, um, any ways to make work available to multiple audiences to be accessible. So, you know, for all those kinds of um, generative reasons, artists and the broader sector needs a policy. Um, But then, of course, all Australians um, need a national cultural policy that says that the government is passionate about the most inspiring, critical, challenging, creative voices. That it's not just in the arts, it's in education, it's in, you know, communications, it's in um, all the different ways in which government creates the frameworks that support us and that draw out what's most inspiring. So this is really important stuff. 
So the new National Cultural Policy Revive that was launched on Monday, as I said, does contain a significant amount of money for the arts, including new money, which is uh, important to note, as well as some money that has been redirected from uh, a, uh, a previous COVID insurance scheme that is apparently no longer needed. So it, it's a significant investment. Does it go far enough? For example, one of the concerns leading up to the launch before we knew what would be in it was, would it uh, help different government departments work together? Is it the, the kind of cross-government approach that we need that connects culture with education, with international relationships and so forth? Oh, look, I've, I've said before I would love to have seen a tripling of the Australia Council's budget because it is super fantastic to have that, what has become known as the Brandis cuts. It's great to have those back. But what that means is that they're back to that period, um, what was it, a decade ago or less, when they were cut. So um, it would be fantastic um, if there's, you know, greater money in the contestable funds that the Australia Council has. But this is really tremendous when we consider the massive pressures on the budget through the pandemic. Like, it's, it's epic that this has been achieved, I have to say. But then when it goes to those broader questions, um, you know, how do we connect up, as you say, across across government. Um, the one thing I'm really heartened by um, is that this is a five-year approach. This is the beginning of a conversation. Um, I think the Minister said there's going to be other announcements to be made around things like the National Culture Institutions and, um, and, and, and other things. Um, but also, I think where that new investment is made in things like the Centre for Arts and Entertainment Workplaces, the First Nations Body, Right of Australia, Music Australia, this is that kind of critical reimagining now of the Australia Council to create create creative, I think, is it? Creative or creating Australia? Creative Australia, the new Australia Council. Um, this is really substantial because it means that really for the first time, the Australia Council reimagined is going to be empowered to support and focus well beyond just what it funds. And so that strategic work, which has been lacking in the past, um, you know, except for piecemeal things around sector development that have then been defunded um, and, you know, youth development and so on, this now gives us an opportunity to go, OK, let's think really big picture and then let's be forensic about certain critical things. It's... Let's look at the Australia Council in more detail, which for people who aren't familiar with the Australia Council is the government's arm's length arts funding body that supports both grassroots independent arts practice right through to the major cultural organisations such as the, the state theatre companies uh, and opera companies around the country. So the Australia Council, which uh, really effectively got underway in 1975, although its roots go back earlier, um, is being completely reimagined as part of this national cultural policy. As you say, Esther, not just being renamed to Creative Australia, but given new remits as well, focused on... Uh, four key areas, including uh, an autonomous First Nations arts body, uh, a focus on contemporary music, which has perhaps, because of its sometimes commercial nature, has been perhaps overlooked or sidelined in the arts conversation, uh, a renewed focus on the literary sector, which is 
definitely been underfunded compared to other parts of the, the arts ecology. Uh, and as you say, a new organisation focused on workplace safety in the arts. These are kind of significant new initiatives that will clearly change the, the future of the arts landscape. Yeah, that is exactly right. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, as you say, um, uh, literature has been disproportionately poorly funded. Um, um, and that's, um, you know, without a really, without a really clear focus on how and why, it's very difficult for um, peer assessors to often judge, you know, the, the, the one against the other. But also, um, as we've seen in responses this week, including Jessica Alice's Fermi Engine the other day, um, we look at the history of, in the last sort of decade, how literature funding has tried to be, you know, shifted in. There was that book council that was going to uh, be formed. Money was taken away from the Australia Council to establish it. It then wasn't established. That money wasn't returned to the Australia Council. Um, so it is really important that um, there is a good strategic look at how to how do individual writers earn their incomes um, what's the publishing landscape around small independent publishing books, journals, etc., um, as well as international? Um, and then that's before we look at um, music and the other areas that, that, that you mentioned. Um, having a specific body on arts and entertainment workplaces that can look really seriously and rigorously at the working conditions of artists and arts workers and not simply have a look but be able to recommend to government, look, I don't think, you know, X or Y organisation is compliant. I don't think they should be funded. So actual consequences, not just uh, people coming forward with terrible experiences they've had and then, you know, that kind of uh, fog of power relations just uh, wafting over and absolutely nothing happening and then things becoming worse. So when it comes to racism, anti-racism, sexism, uh, sexual abuse, predatory sexual behaviour, um, as well as other abuses of power, um, we've now got some steps towards really redressing this. Esther, what's missing from the national cultural policy? I've heard some people's concerns that there is a lack of focus on the youth art sector, for example, which has been severely debilitated over the last decade or more. Yeah, good point. And of course, um, you know, many listeners know this is where Richard and I began working together and very, very important to us and close to our heart. Um, you're absolutely right. And when funds were ripped away from the Australia Council some years ago, it was youth, prog youth programs, young and emerging, uh, all those specific programs that vanished. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That, that is missing. There is a commitment to restore the Office for Youth. And that is, of course, a, um, a body that works across portfolios um, and um, will hopefully have some great people in there to, you know, make good on what um, Minister Burke has been describing as those cross-portfolio connections because it's absolutely needed. And then alongside youth, looking at emerging, looking at experimental practice, we do need investment in the areas where great ideas and the unexpected emerge at whatever age. Um, and so imagining also that with those additional funds that have been returned to the Australia Council, 
to become Creative Australia, there will now be that capacity to kind of sit back once again and say, okay, what do our funding programs look like? Let's look at youth. Let's look at those other important areas. One of the other important areas that perhaps has not been significantly addressed in detail, and we may see more develop over the the next year or two, is the skills shortage, particularly in the performing arts sector. We've seen during the pandemic a lot of people, technicians, stage crew, uh, actors and others, leave the sector because there's simply... It's not... their income has not been secure and they have a roof to keep over their head and families to support. Certainly Live Performance Australia, one of the peak bodies, um, uh, kind of said that achieving and sustaining the ambition of the policy will require a larger skilled industry workforce which has been profoundly impacted by the pandemic. There is much more work to be done in this area. Given that Tony Burke is the Minister for the Arts but also the Minister for uh, what workplace relations? I believe is uh, one of his other portfolios. Yeah. Um, I confess I'm I was surprised to not see a slightly stronger focus on on this area of the national cultural policy. And it's an area of yeah huge urgency. I think yeah LPA are absolutely spot on there. I mean, how many conversations have we all been in with people who we would never have imagined were going to leave the sector forever, and they have. Um, so this isn't so much a question of um, not being able to. Um, support and train people right now. It's about the massive brain drain of extremely expert people with, um, you know, long-term records and networks and, and you know, a huge impact and influence. So, yeah, that, that really needs to be addressed. I'm really heartened by the First Nations Creative Workforce Development Strategy because that's something that... Um, you know, I've, um, I think we've, we've all been in a lot of um, conversations about the um, the great um, shortage of, um, you know, as compared to demand um, for First Nations, not just creatives, but curators, producers, executive producers, directors. Um, there is just so much demand for the fine, fine work of the First Nations creative sector. Um, and, um, yeah, at the moment, a, a real uh, difficulty um, in supporting and getting people through. But it's also about, as, as your Bidgeri say, um, in particular Rachel Mather and, um, and Angela Flynn, about supporting and developing what they call our ways of working, so First Nations ways of working and being able to... Um, articulate and develop that for workplaces um, and something that, you know, uh, all um, workplaces can, can learn from. Um, I think we're, we're right to be heartened by the fact that um, Minister Burke is also workplace relations. Um, he's also the Leader of the House. Um, he's, um, his role in um, supporting great strategy um, is exceptionally important, you know, for, for an arts minister where, you know, we're we're quite lucky in that regard, and so it's um, um, it's terribly important in the way that this rolls out um, that um, training and development is is crucial, but so is supporting organisations to be able to train and keep great people, as well as continuing to attract great people. 
My guest is Esther Anatolitis, who is the editor of Mianjin and an arts advocate in Australia. Uh, and we're talking about the national cultural policy. And I should point out that, yes, we've talked about a couple of areas where perhaps the policy uh, falls slightly short. But that is not to say that it is a bad policy. I'm certainly delighted to see it. I'm certainly delighted to see the range of areas it addresses. And I'm particularly thrilled to see... Uh, money cut by previous Minister for the Arts, George Brandis, back in 2015, returned to the Australia Council. That had a huge impact on the sector and more money going towards a range of initiatives, including, uh, indeed, Esther, that, that notion not just of First Nations first, but uh, a real commitment to cracking down on fake Indigenous art, for example, the oh, creation yeah. of a new National Aboriginal yeah. Gallery in Alice Springs, and also a commitment to the mm. screen sector to introduce quotas yeah. that will force Netflix and other streaming giants to employ more Australian artists from a range of backgrounds, from composers to actors to screenwriters, and result in what I've uh, what has been estimated as approximately 400 hours of new Australian content a year across the streaming services platforms. Oh, and this is just so important. I mean, um, I think the quota in Europe, or possibly some parts of Europe, is thirty percent of their revenues. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if we'll get to that here. And the minister said there's more consultation to come, which is going to be, you know, super important. But yeah, there we were all during lockdown, um, consuming, to use my least favourite word, next to content, uh, consuming content from, um, you know, largely other countries uh, and. Also so thanks to the ABC, but then compounding the fact that there was no such requirement, we also had, uh, you know, that the previous government cut um, content quotas on free-to-air uh, and um, subscription TV for Australian content, Australian documentary, kids' programming, um, a, few, a few other areas. So there's a lot to reverse there. There's a lot to get right. And um, I think it's just, I mean, God, there are so many great Australian writers, screenwriters, actors, filmmakers, documentary makers, kids, program makers, who I'm sure have been struggling to get a foot in the door with these, some of, you know, some of these streaming giants, unless you've already got some kind of in. Um, then it's super difficult. So a quota is a mechanism that means that at the Netflix end and, and, and the other uh, um, streaming giants, um, there is that uh, impetus, there is that requirement to say, OK, as we're looking strategically at what we do, we will also be supporting and making Australian work and we'll support local industry and create great work. And, of course, we'll be thrilled and astounded by how great it is. We'll be showing it overseas. So this is, a, you know, this is good. This is good. We could talk for hours, I'm sure, about the National Cultural Policy. <laughs> Revive launched on Monday. We're out of time. Esther, thank you for joining us. Uh, if people want to read more analysis of the National Cultural Policy, uh, you can go to meangin.com.au. You can look at The Guardian, The Age. You can go to artshub.com.au. Uh, and I think the sector will be continuing to pick the policy apart for a while while also celebrating what it means for the future of the arts and culture sectors in Australia. Esther Anatolidis, Editor of Mianjin, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Thank you. Have a great day. 
Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 